everyone and welcome back to World of Sharks, a podcast all about sharks, rays and the ocean that they call home, brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm Isla, professional shark nerd, official job title, and science communicator for the Save Our Seas Foundation. And every episode, I get to pick the brains of experts in shark science, conservation, education, and storytelling to take you, our lovely listeners, on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. We hope you had a fantastic holiday season and that you managed to beat the January blues. I know January for me is the hardest month, but I do live in the Northern Hemisphere where it gets very cold and windy and wet this time of year, which means I can't get in the sea as often as I'd like and that makes me very grumpy. But what has made this month a whole lot better is all of your lovely emails and messages that you've sent in and the reviews that you've taken the time to write. It really has brightened my days and I am working my way through replying to them. If I haven't got back to you yet, I will do, I promise. But it's just so nice to hear that you're all enjoying the pod and it makes all the hard work 100% worth it. We are also addressing some of the topics that you suggested in upcoming episodes, so do listen out for that. But for now, thank you so much for taking the time to get in touch and leaving such kind words. We really, really do appreciate it. Now, on with today's episode, and we are back with a bang this season with a kind of unusual but utterly fascinating topic, shark skin time travel. Now, when you think of fossils, you typically think of bones or, in the case of sharks, teeth, because as we all know, sharks have a skeleton made of cartilage, which doesn't tend to fossilise all that well. But skin is probably the last thing that you would think of. Well, today's episode is about to blow that out of the water. Shark skin is not like our own meagre, flimsy epidermis. It has very special properties. Their skin consists of lots of teeny tiny scales called dermal denticles, which are more like teeth than anything else. They are made out of a tough enamel-like substance, which makes them incredibly durable. And that means that they can be preserved for incredibly long periods of time. In fact, some of the earliest evidence that we have of sharks comes from their skin. Paleontologists have identified dermal denticles that date back to over 400 million years ago, which is pretty insane. And scientists can use these denticles as a window into the past to understand what types of ancient sharks were about at different periods of time and how this has changed across history. And this is exactly what our guest today does for her day job. Dr. Erin Dillon is a conservation paleobiologist and postdoctoral research fellow at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, where she studies denticles found in ancient coral reef sediments over a time period known as the Holocene. The Holocene refers to the last 12,000 years of the Earth's history, which means that it's the time when our own species, Homo sapiens, decided that they were, you know, really going to make their mark on the planet. (laughs) So Erin's work seeks to understand what shark communities on coral reefs looked like before and after humans really started to shape the seas. Given that a lot of the sharks that were around then are also alive today, Erin's work can give us really important insight into what healthy ecosystems should look like, given the right management and a whole lot less human interference. We talk all about this and more on this episode. Erin's work is utterly fascinating. She also calls herself the time-travelling shark sleuth, which I think is perhaps my favourite job title of all time. I personally think it would make a great book series if any of you creatively minded listeners are looking for some new ideas. Erin teaches us all about sediment cores, the amazing properties of shark skin, and how she even begins to find these incredibly tiny denticles, which are no bigger than a grain of salt, in a ton of sand. That's like finding a needle in a haystack, but on steroids. I know you'll love this episode. Erin is such a fantastic science communicator and her passion for the subject just leaps out of her. If you want to follow along with her work, we have links in the show notes as to how to do that. As always, please go and show her some love and appreciation for the amazing work that she does. Okay, 
Without further ado, get ready to go back in time and let's dive into our episode. Hello, Erin Dillon, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. You have, when I was researching the episodes for season five and I came across your project, you have the most intriguing name of a Save Our Seas Foundation project I think I've ever seen, which was Shark Skin Time Machine. Or that was one of the articles, yes. Which I was like, I need to do an episode on that. That sounds utterly fascinating. But we're going to learn all about that in this episode. We're going to talk about shark skin. We're going to talk about what it is you mean by time traveling with shark skin. I'm so excited to get stuck into it. But before we do any of that, we like to get to know you a little bit better. And regular listeners of the pod will know that we like to start and end every single episode with the same question for every guest. And the first one is, do you have an experience with the ocean that stands out for you as particularly memorable or special? Yeah, so I I have kind of two stories uh, that I'll tell. And the first kind of memory that I had of the ocean is maybe not one that you might expect, which was a trip that we took to Hawaii when I was maybe six years old. And I got to the beach really excited and I hated it. There's a picture of me just like sitting on the beach, getting like hit by waves (laughs) and crying. So my first memory was I was kind of terrified of the ocean and of the beach, which is maybe not what you would expect as uh, someone who ended up being a marine biologist. (laughs) Sure, Um, yeah. But obviously things have kind of turned around. Now I go snorkeling and like you can't get me out of the water. And so the, the second kind of memorable experience was my first time snorkeling on Palmyra, which is a tiny island in the Pacific Ocean about a thousand miles um, south of, of Hawaii. So a really remote place. Um, I stuck my head in the water and it was just, I mean, like ecologies in, in a textbook come to life of just mm. underwater cities with fish and the colors of corals. It was the first time I saw a shark. Um, and so it was just like this really dramatic and like awe-inspiring experience of like just how complex a coral reef is um, and was very important then scientifically going forward to see what was kind of this healthy, intact ecosystem. So really, that was really an incredible um, and memorable, sure. I guess, experience of the ocean. Yeah, sure. I'm really glad you gave those two experiences because it's such a glorious contrast between you as a small child crying on the beach because you're getting hit by waves and being utterly terrified to being just in awe of this incredible habitat. And I guess that's what snorkeling really does or diving or something like that is that it opens up that world to you. I mean, I I had similar experiences, not with the water. I was always a water baby, but with hiking and walking up in the hills and the mountains in particular, I used to hate it. And I used to cry and be like, I'm cold. And then now that's just what I do for fun. So <laughs> I totally get you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you're totally right, is that a coral reef a healthy coral reef is just such this burst of life and so much color and vibrancy and just so special to experience that in 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 real life especially considering how unhealthy a lot of those ecosystems are now right exactly so it was sort of that contrast actually i mean i was very privileged to get to go and see multiple different coral reefs kelp forests different marine habitats as Mm -hmm. an undergrad student and it was that contrast and that spatial variation that got me thinking a little bit more about how humans were interacting with those ecosystems what that spatial variation was, and then kind of the the deeper ecological history of those sites. And that is kind of where this idea of the time machine came from. Yeah, great segue. Great segue. Thank you for that. (laughs) But before we kind of get into what you do now, I sort of wanted to rewind a little bit. So you started out life as someone who was terrified of the ocean. And then to go from that to where you are now, I'm quite interested in that sort of like middle stage and when did sharks kind of first come into your life were they something that you were always interested in or were they something that sort of came along a bit later on 
Yeah, so it's a good question. So I, I guess I first became really interested in sharks watching nature documentaries as a kid. I went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and so I got really um, into marine science um, as a, as a young person. Um, we got to go tide pooling, so I grew up somewhat near the coast um, in California, and got really interested in, in marine biology. In about seventh grade, I had this really inspirational teacher who like took us mm-hmm. out into the field, and we got to really experience and touch things and and like see what how cool nature was and what it might be to study it but even like as a as a kid i was really interested in in sharks some some kids are into dinosaurs sharks are more my thing i had a shark birthday party one year nice um but but really i was like interested in ecology and then never really expected to to end up studying sharks and so like in um college and later on, I was yeah interested in ecology. I studied kelp forests. I was into barnacles, all sorts of different things. <laughs> um, and then serendipitously ended up working with sharks. <laughs> what did you look at to do with barnacles just out of interest? Well, they're, they're kind of cool creatures, but we were also looking, I did some like little research projects on intertidal zonation. I was really interested in the feeding mechanisms of barnacles. Yeah. Uh, they're just really cool organisms. They are, they are. I got like, I got really into them a couple of months ago because that paper came out about the shark eating barnacles. I don't know if you saw that, where they like burrow into the head of deep sea dogfish. I think I did come across that. It's wild. It's absolutely wild. Because usually they're like a little shrimp thing on their back, right, with the legs. Mm-hmm. Sort of mm-hmm. listeners can't see this, but I'm gesturing, <laughs> wafting <laughs> with my arms. Um, and usually they just kind of feed like that. They just waft their arms, their appendages around. But this barnacles developed this special organ that can burrow into this the flesh of, they found them on uh, deep sea dogfish. And they can like pull the nutrients, extract the nutrients out, and they're effectively eating the shark from the inside out, which is... Oh, that's fascinating and sort of like a horror movie. Yeah, it's like gloriously horrific. It's so mm-hmm. <laughs> so interesting, but like really weird and wacky. So yeah, I agree with you. Barnacles are extremely cool. I like them a lot. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's interesting because we've had a, a couple of different guests on the podcast who either kind of went into the field that they're in because they just wanted to study sharks, but also people that sort of fell into the world of sharks through the kind of niche that they made for themselves. And you've got a very, very interesting niche that we've not quite had on the podcast yet. You're a paleoecologist and biologist. And I wondered if you could explain what that means to our listeners who might not have heard of that field before. Yeah, so my research is really interdisciplinary, meaning that I'm combining information and tools from multiple different fields. So that includes biology, it includes paleontology, um, ecology, and then sort of applying that information to hopefully ultimately to, to conservation. Um, and so in my case, a lot of the questions that I'm interested in are more ecological in nature. So thinking about how and about why communities and ecosystems in the oceans are changing, what sharks are kind of doing as predators in those ecosystems, why they're important. But then one kind of aspect to that question that's a little bit lesser addressed is is time. And so to explore um, ecological processes and change over kind of longer timescales than maybe we might be accustomed to thinking of as humans and as ecologists, um, I'm combining different types of information, so ecological, like surveys, mm. historical data, and then uh, the fossil record. Cool. Um, and it gives us this really important, like, temporal context um, of how sure. ecosystems um, are changing. Such important questions to ask, and still questions that we have a lot of, or still a lot of areas that we have a lot of question marks over, right? Because we know that sharks are important in their ecosystems, but we don't quite know exactly what some of their roles are or what would happen if we took them out of the ecosystem. And I just think it's so cool that you're not only looking at that, but looking at that over, you know, quite large timescales as well. It's it's really interesting. Exactly. And even sort of the, the modern day studies that are trying to understand, you know, what sharks are doing, which is still sort of being unraveled. We're still kind of looking at it through this lens of an impacted ecosystem where, you know, fishing has already happened. We've already removed some of our like very upper apex top top predators from this ecosystem. Mm. And so thinking about that, those roles and how they're how they've changed over time and what that might mean for sharks in the future is really important. 
we're going to get stuck further into how exactly you look at these things and how you study them and also what you found as well. And your PhD developed a, a new tool in the field. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about this and kind of what your PhD was looking at. Yeah, so my PhD was uh, focused on reconstructing shark communities on coral reefs over the past several thousand years. Um, with the aim of you know, quantifying baselines for sharks before major human impact, um, looking at uh, trends over time um, and how those communities have changed, and then to sort of unravel some of the causes and consequences of those changes. And this is really important because, as I kind of mentioned before, um, it's, sharks are really important upper trophic level consumers in coral reef food webs. Um, but, you know, we've been fishing them. Their populations are declining um, quite a lot over recent decades and are quite susceptible to change. Um, and so they've kind of emerged as this key conservation concern. But we don't really know, you know, what is what could could they be, given that we've changed the system so much. And so with the goal of kind of setting better management goals, monitoring progress toward those goals, um, baselines and understanding this kind of temporal change becomes really important. And how did you how did you look at that? Because I know that you developed a new tool in that you're using shark skin to basically understand past assemblages, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we started looking at shark scales. So they're also called dermal denticles. Mm -hmm. And we found that they're preserved in coral reef sediment. And so it gives us this way to go back in time before ecological surveys, um, before humans started fishing and kind of altering habitats to look at what was natural in a particular place. Um, and so this, this project kind of initially started actually when I was first an intern at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, where I am right now, mm -hmm. as this super risky, like probably isn't going to work, but would be really cool if it did uh, sort of project. So I started digging through reef sediment. And the first moment when I actually found a denticle was like <laughs> aha moment of like, hmm, interesting, like this might, hmm, I wonder if this is actually going to work. Um, and of course, there was uh -huh. a lot of hard work that followed in terms of like developing the methodology, sure. building a reference collection of these scales to try to understand what we can actually learn from a, from a scale. Um, and so my PhD was sort of developing this method further to establish it as a tool to you know, over thousands of years, try to reconstruct shark communities on a wow. reef um, and then ap apply it in one place, which was Panama, to, to show that it actually works and what we can and can't say using this method. Wow. So like really like brand new stuff, brand new information. Yeah. No one had done exactly. it before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so, so amazing. So there's like a little bit of like like people had looked at dental morphology and there was some deep time dental work, but no mm. one had really done it before in this particular context. And so, yeah, it was brand new. And so we had to, we were starting from square one with like, uh, okay, we find a dental in the sediment. Is this actually an accurate reflection of shark communities? What, what biases are there? Like how well preserved are they? Um, and then from there, kind of applying the method and, and showing like, okay, we actually can use this to capture change over a much longer time scale than we would be able to do with um, just, just like a visual survey. Sure. Oh, it's so fascinating. And I can imagine that was such a wonderful moment when you found your first denticle and was like, huh, this might actually work. <laughs> right. We have a, a kind of an inside joke in the lab where we have a denticle foghorn sound, which... <laughs> forget how it actually started but then I would start going by my advisor's office and like like we have a foghorn and then the foghorn started increasing in frequency as I started finding more and more denticles amazing amazing I love this <laughs> I love the idea of a lab just like erupting with foghorns everywhere that's with wonderful <laughs> that's wonderful and it blows my mind because you know I I know about shark skin and we're going to get into that in a little bit but even just to think when you think of things that have preserved over you know potentially hundreds or thousands or sometimes even millions of years skin is not the first thing that comes to mind skin because we're so used to our own you know rubbish kind of fragile skin you'd imagine that that would be one of the first things to disintegrate but sharks have a slightly different skin to our own um and even to fish you know other other 
types of fish scales. So for those listening who are a little unfamiliar with shark skin and how kind of special it is, can you describe it for us? Yeah, so shark skin is, yeah, as you said, very different than like human skin. So sharks are actually covered in teeny tiny little teeth, essentially. Um, So these teeth, as I mentioned, are, um, they're like scales. Uh, They're called dermal denticles. And yeah, they're super tiny. They're about 100 microns to one millimeters across, which is about the size of like table salt. So really tiny. Like if I was to show you some in the palm of my hand, you might be able to make out that there's something there, but you wouldn't really be able to like see them. If you've ever um, sort of like petted a shark in an aquarium, you might have noticed that their skin is sort of rough in one direction, like sandpaper and smooth in the other. And it's because of these tiny, tiny teeth. But yeah, they're, they're quite similar to teeth. They're similar in composition. They have a pulp. They're surrounded by dentin and enamel. So quite similar to our teeth or to shark teeth. And the key here is that they're quite durable. Um, mm. And so unlike you know our skin that, yes, it would disintegrate, similar to shark teeth, which you might think of if you think of a shark fossil, they're very durable and they preserve over long, long timescales in the fossil record. And so tiny, like when you said that figure there, so like tiny. just... I am thinking about you in the lab, right? Looking for your first denticle. <laughs> uh-huh. That adds like an extra level to it, right? Because you're even sifting through sediments or like sand, so tiny particles anyway. It is very difficult work. Yeah, it is like finding a needle in a haystack. There are some uh, techniques to, to make our work a little bit easier, mm-hmm. but it is still very challenging work to pull them out under a microscope. <laughs> You kind of I'm develop not... an eye for like sif- sifting through. Mm, I'm not surprised you have a foghorn. It would be so exciting to find one after all of that it hard is, work. It's <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. And they're beautiful. So when you see them and you're sort of like sifting through the particles and you're like, okay, sand, sand, like here's a piece of a sponge spicule. And then you see a denticle and it's like, wow, this is just such a, it's like a tiny little treasure. Oh my goodness. Um, We'll have to try and find some like images of shark denticles and put them in the show notes for people to have a look at because they are they are really pretty and very impressive like i mean biology just like blows my mind all the time but just how perfectly formed they are and how they all like overlap each other like tiles on a roof it's just it's really cool to look at um (laughs) but what kind of advantages do sharks have from having this kind of really we've already talked about them being very durable and i imagine that kind of helps them when they get knocked about underwater or if they're you know fighting with other sharks potentially but what other advantages do they get from having skin like this So denticles come in kind of a wide variety of shapes and sizes, which from us made it a little bit difficult to classify them. But these different uh, morphological forms uh, confer different advantages. So there's three kind of main ones. Um, The one that you're maybe most familiar with is drag reduction. So the denticles that have little ridges on them are aligned in the direction of fluid flow. And so it changes basically how water is flowing over the body and it makes sharks more hydrodynamic. Um, So it reduces drag and sort of increases thrust and lift. And there's a lot of really cool physics behind how how they actually work. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's one key advantage that makes them more hydrodynamic. There are some denticles that look like tiny little pebbles almost, and they're really, really, they're much thicker. Um, and those are providing kind of like an armor. So particularly for um, more demersal sharks that are like hanging out near the bottom of, mm-hmm. or near the substrate. So if you go to an aquarium, something like, a, often there's like zebra sharks or maybe a nurse shark in your aquarium that's mm-hmm. just like sitting on the bottom of the aquarium tank and maybe rubbing up against rocks and sand. These denticles are giving it some protection. And then one of the other key functions, which is sort of still hypothesized, although there's kind of growing evidence, is kind of a defensive denticle type, which is Mm -hmm. interesting in the context of this barnacle example you brought up earlier, because these are thought to sort of prevent parasites and other epibionts from like Mm -hmm. settling on the skin. They're sort of more, they stick up. So rather than being more flat against the skin and giving Mm -hmm. it this hydrodynamic benefit, they're like, sticking up out of the skin. They're kind of angled out of the skin a bit more. So there's mm-hmm. sort of trade-offs between drag reduction and defense there. But yeah, they're supposed to present 
parasites. Um, mm. And so, yeah, there's some pretty cool like biomimicry work done given these different functions. So like there's a, a Speedo swimsuit that yes. came out that was supposed to be modeled after the drag reduction denticles. There's like, and it got banned, right? Ships and planes. It got banned. Although yeah. there's, there was some uh, work done after that was showing that because humans are swimming in a different way than sharks do, mm. that the actual benefit of this suit, I think, was pretty minor. It might have helped a little bit, but not that much. But yes, it did get banned from the Olympics, which was interesting. <laughs> which just um, shows yeah, how was... efficient sharks are, that they were like, no, we cannot have that at the Olympics because it'll give you an advantage, right? Unfair advantage. I'm sure they were quite expensive as well. Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I know for sure that I couldn't afford one as much as I would like to try one out. Grant money. No. <laughs> oh, mm. how can mm. I shoehorn that into develop, my fellowship? Develop a project, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> or just say to save our seas, like I absolutely t- need to test one of these out for work. <laughs> so uh, James, if you're listening, I'm about to ask you for thousands of pounds for a, a shark skin swimsuit. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding just kidding um but it just goes to show just how amazing animals that sharks are we talk about this obviously a lot on the podcast but just they have these kind of superpowers and the fact that they have like armor they have you know hydrodynamic advantages some of them uh, and they can also you know ward off parasites and injuries and things but i will send you the pictures of and I'll put them in the show notes as well of the dogfish with these like barnacle that they're, they're quite big. So I don't know if that like negates the the dental denticles at all, but they're they're quite massive and it is quite gruesome and grim. But otherwise <laughs> otherwise the skin kind of helps. I'm fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it to you after this. Um but you've been recovering shark denticles from coral reef sediments, as you said. And if I got this correct you've excavated around half a ton something like that of sand over <laughs> my phd it's a lot of sand <laughs> we a lot of sand. on pallets <laughs> i've learned a lot about shipping <laughs> <laughs> a bit a bit oh just the amount of work that goes into that i half a ton is just insane well done for that uh but you've said before that denticles kind of preserve exquisitely in coral reef sediments and I think we've just kind of touched on it there but and is is there a reason why they're particularly found in coral reef sediments yeah so I'll take I guess one I'll take one step back and mm-hmm. another interesting attribute about shark scales is that sharks are shedding their their scales their denticles mm. and so they're kind of continuously producing this record this rain of denticles you could almost think of it as like a da- like dandruff I guess. Yeah. Um, nice. and so there's an input of these scales into sand that's happening. A shark doesn't need to die in order to leave mm. this record. And so it's kind of this recorder of like anytime a shark is in a habitat, is moving around, it's probably losing some denticles along the way. And denticles are, again, quite durable. So they're composed of calcium phosphate, again, kind of similar to our teeth. So they're really, you know, mm-hmm. they're hard. They're pretty resistant to dissolution. And so... They're preserved over the you know a thousand, couple thousand year timescales that I'm interested in, but also over many, many millions of years. So some of the first uh, like earliest remains of shark-like creatures are actually denticles. They're just really yeah. tiny, so people kind of overlook them. They're really focused on teeth, and they're like, oh, shark teeth are so cool. Denticles, sharks have a lot more denticles than teeth. They're also very durable, but they're super tiny, and so they kind of get a little bit overlooked. Yeah. The sad, sad cousin of teeth. Oh, the sad cousin of teeth. I love that. Um, I will I will say I was one of those people up until recently. So we've been working on a scrolling timeline for our World of Shocks website. Uh, and I was doing a lot of research to try and find what the earliest evidence of, you know, shark-like forms was. And I mean, we're talking about going back like 420 million years and it's denticles. It's, it's, it's their skin. Yeah crazy because I I always thought it was going to be shark teeth but but no that's what you yeah that's what I would have thought and then I also discovered this I'm like oh that's really cool that it's it's actually identical yeah maybe we need to start a campaign that skin no longer needs to be the sad cousin of shark teeth and dermal denticles need to be (laughs) seen as (laughs) equally if not more cool than teeth right (laughs) new campaign 
<laughs> new campaign. We need to, yeah. We need to figure out what we're going to call the campaign. It needs some sort of. I'll think on that while you're explaining coral reef sediments. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. So I mean, they are preserved in other sediments. I guess mm-hmm. one key aspect again of our work is that we do focus on pretty low energy sites. So there's. Mm. If you go to like the fore reef where waves are crashing, there's a lot of wave energy and water movement and you were to collect sediments there. We did just for just for fun, just to, to look. There are very few denticles and the ones that you do find are broken just because there's so much energy. They're getting thrown around. They're getting washed out of the system. So you do need to be careful about like where you're actually collecting. Some environments are better at preserving things than, than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but denticles, yeah, they're found in coral reef sediments. They're also found in deep sea sediments. And so there's some really cool work using deep sea cores that goes back over millions of years. The accumulation, just like if we were to collect a sediment core from coral reefs, um, our core might be, let's say, three to six meters long. So pretty long. And even then, we're, we're just capturing like 7,000 years. And so it depends on how fast those layers of sediment are actually accumulating in terms of what time scales you're, you're looking at. But yeah, denticles should be preserved in many, many different habitats. Um, for us, one, I guess, um, nice thing about coral reef sediments is that you can dissolve them. And so I might've collected half a ton of sediment, but I didn't have to sort through a half of a ton of sediment under a microscope oh, okay. because we could mm-hmm. dissolve most of the actual um, particles of, of sand because they're calcium carbonate. Um, whereas if you went to a place that wasn't calcium carbonate, it was like, let's say quartz, it would be very difficult to actually extract the denticles mm. from those sediments, even if they're there. Okay. Still, still a lot of work, but you kind of took one of the, still a lot of work. Oh yeah. For one sure. of the steps out of it. Um, but then mm-hmm. once you, so mm-hmm. say you've got your sediment core, how do you then, so you dissolve some, most of the sediment, first of all, but how do you then extract the denticles? Because they're so, as we said earlier, they're so incredibly tiny. Yes, it's a, uh, it's a challenge. It took a lot of methods development and like working with collaborators. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I'll take a step back. So we, sometimes we use sediment cores. So these are like very long pieces of aluminum pipe. It's essentially uh, like irrigation pipe, aluminum irrigation pipe that we pound down into the reef um, it's branching coral matrix. And so it kind of, it preserves the structure, let's say, of the reef. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're able to go back a couple thousand years. And then once it's all pounded in, we cap the top. So it's sort of like putting your thumb mm-hmm. over a straw. And then you can lift the whole thing out. And you get these different layers of time that tell a story of how the reef has changed through time. So that's one method we use. Another method is uh, bulk sampling which is you take a large cloth bag and then you're able to collect a very large sample. So some of our bags are like one kilogram in weight, others are 10 kilograms. Um, okay. And particularly in sediments where denticles are kind of rare, that can be nice to get a, a lot of sediment. Mm. But then once we actually bring all these lovely samples back to our lab, um, it starts with sieving. So we have different uh, sieve sizes, similar to like a colander or a sieve you might use in the kitchen, except the opening is a different size. And so we're able to separate out sand particles that are big from those that are small, just so we can focus on the the size that's actually of interest to us. The key ingredient is vinegar. (laughs) So we start with a lot of sediment. Similar to putting like an egg in in vinegar, um, we use acetic acid to dissolve away about 90% of the weight that we're actually working with. And then very carefully under a microscope can sort through the residuals with a paintbrush very very high tech um and then we can pull out the denticles yeah because i imagine even if the denticles have you know they're quite durable and they've lasted that amount of time you know maybe the longer that they're there the more brittle they are i mean i don't know yeah i guess can can be yeah yeah Uh, one thing we're really interested in is Mm -hmm. uh is like the preservation or like the weathering and so we we're classifying them into different forms but we're also um, measuring different um, like aspects of like is the top part the crown of the denticle all there are certain parts broken um, or like partially dissolved and so that kind of gets at your question of like yes mm-hmm. in some environments they might be worse preserved um, in others mm-hmm. um, and with that kind of those numbers in hand, we can then think about like, okay, are the data that we're, the raw data that we're actually getting representative of the, of the sharks in that environment? Or is there this really important like preservational bias that we need to be mm. uh, accounting for? 
Okay. And then how do you how do you know how old this denticle is when it comes up? Great question. Yeah. So temporal context in terms of like where are our samples in time? And then also how much time does a sample represent are really important questions. So there's there's more than just denticles in the sample. Another thing that we find are pieces of coral. And so we're able to date those pieces of coral using something called uranium thorium dating. And it's really high uh, precision dating. So the error, like the uncertainty on some of these dates is like plus or minus 10 years, which is pretty crazy when you think wow. about then trying to relate some of these samples to like a human timeline or think about um, relating changes in coral to fish otoliths to denticles in our samples. Um, we have these dates and can build an age, what's called an age depth model that will relate how like deep you are in a core mm -hmm. to where you are in time with some amount of uncertainty. That's amazing. Cause when, when, when we're looking at any like form of paleontology, quite often the margins are quite large. So like we're looking at, it could be anywhere. This could be from 20,000 to 40,000 years ago or something like that. But to have 10 years, that's incredibly specific for this kind of work. That's insane. Definitely, yeah. So it's a, I guess be before this method was created and mm. became more popular, often like radiocarbon um, dates mm. were used, but we work with one lab. There's only a handful of labs in the world that could do this type of dating, but it's really sort of revolutionized the type of insight that we can get from these samples because no longer are we stuck with really wide error bars. Of course, there's still like, you can find age reversals where you have like, uh, an older coral on top of a younger coral and mm. then there's some uncertainty so it's it's you know it's never a perfect method but it does give us this extraordinary timing of events so you can look at relating trends across cores relating trends to other events in, in history with better precision than you would have otherwise and that was called uranium uranium, uranium something thorium uranium thorium uranium thorium thorium dating. Okay. We've talked about carbon dating before on the podcast when we did a sh an episode on Greenland sharks. So I kind of understood that before, but uranium thorium is something that I've not heard of before, but I'm imagining they're testing the levels of those elements, I guess. My understanding is that, so, you, so for the corals, I think it's they're absorbing the uranium when they're alive, and then when they die, then it's starting to uh, become the what, the daughter. And so you can look at the ratio of uranium thorium to then try to understand when when did it die. That's my wow understanding. Some sort of like cool witchcraft science sort of thing. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so we've kind of learned about sort of how old the denticle, or maybe how old the denticles are, kind of what time period they came from. But then how do we tell, I'm saying we as if I'm, I'm, I've been part of this work at all, um, but how can you tell which denticles belong to who? So it's a bit of a game of like, guess, guess who, I guess. Um, so part of the initial uh, methods development was an basically answering their question of like, okay, we have extracted an isolated denticle from the sediment. Now, now what? Like, what can we actually learn from this denticle? Mm -hmm. um, and so our first step was to build a reference collection. Um, I spent some time in the ichthyology collections at the National Museum of Natural History of the Smithsonian in DC, pulling Amazing. little bits of skin off of uh, identified museum specimens to help characterize all of the morphological variation in these denticles across the body of a shark, between different species, between ontogenies, um, between different families, because there's a lot of variation. And so that makes it very challenging to figure out who does a denticle belong to. Um, and there are some broad correlations between form and function. We talked about those a bit. So if you have a ridge denticle, you know that belongs to maybe a faster swimming shark that would benefit from that hydrodynamic um, boost. So we can use, and some of these kind of uh, like functional correlations had already been been worked out. And so we could build on that previous work to develop different functional categories. Um, and so ultimately, when we find an isolated identical, it's really hard to say, oh, it belongs to this species just because there's so much variation. Um, mm, but what sure. we can do instead of kind of relying more on that just nomenclature, we can put them into different functional groups mm -hmm. um, to say something more about the ecology of the community 
Um, and so we can measure sure. traits. We can look at like the size of the denticle, maybe the spacing between the ridges, see what functional group it belongs to, to make some kind of broad scale inferences about the ecology. Yeah, so you can essentially you can say at this period of time, we think that there were, you know, more, I don't know, bottom feeding sharks or more kind of top predators around at this time, like that sort of inference. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes we do find denticles that are fairly diagnostic to a particular mm. um, family or species. So some, some, like in some cases, we can get additional kind of taxonomic information. Um, but yeah, like the, that, the types of inferences that you just uh, mentioned as an example is like more reliably what we can obtain. Yeah. Oh, awesome. You've done so much work, Erin. Like there's all the stuff that you talk about. I'm like, that could just be a PhD in itself. <laughs> but you've done so much. Um, this is so impressive. And you meant, kind of touched on this a little bit earlier on, but you said, how far back have you been able to go in your shark skin time machine? Yeah, so I, I guess my, my work is more focused on the Holocene, which is you know more or less the last 12,000 years. So it's a time when um, like climate and sea level are more similar to the modern day. You have mm -hmm. extant species of sharks, so the same sharks that were swimming around today were swimming around then. Um, and humans are one of the big, I guess, pressures, big differences uh, mm. throughout this time period. And so you can think of it as the like, deeper ecological roots of a system that we might go out um, and study today. And my work is helping to fill previous gaps in knowledge of like what is natural for a system or are the systems today um, and functions of those systems today sort of an aberration of that natural. But I did kind of allude to the fact that this work has been done over different timescales. And so mm. there's colleagues that are, for example, extracting denticles from deep sea cores going back millions of years. So they've you know, documented a rapid and sort of mysterious loss of sharks in the Miocene. Hmm. Um, there's been shark denticles, like some of the earliest shark remains are denticles. And so there are different timescales that you can look at with denticles themselves. Yeah, it's such cool, it's such cool work. But it, the time period that you were looking at makes complete sense because that's a, like around the time that we really started to, you know, make our stamp on the world, you know, and by we, I mean humans. For better or for worse, really, for worse in in most parts. If we're going to be negative about it, but especially when it especially when it comes to sharks, um, and that brings me on really nicely to kind of what you've actually found out. So because you're kind of comparing these sort of more ancient shark assemblages with modern day, and what have you been able to find out about what these kind of more prehistoric shark assemblages used to look like on? those sort of more ancient coral reefs. So we did a first case study and application of this method in uh, Bocas del Toro, which is along the Caribbean coast of Panama, sort of near the border with mm -hmm. Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. um, and there we had access to this really incredible fossil reef. So that was kind of under, under the mangroves that we could take large samples from. And this was our sort of then versus now comparison. So we could compare um, the denticles and other uh, skeletal remains in this fossil reef, which painted this, you know, <clears throat> really beautiful picture of what might these reefs look like before some of the first evidence of human um, resource use in the region. Mm -hmm. And then compare that to similarly collected samples on the coral reefs there today that were just kind of from adjacent sites. And so what we found, um, well, A, it was exciting that there were indeed denticles in these samples. Hooray. Um, some of our Fuck methods right, right. <laughs> But if you were to, you know, go snorkeling on these reefs um, 7,000 years ago, that's when our site dated to, not only would sharks have been more common, so we found that the denticle accumulations at this fossil site were about three times higher than those on adjacent modern reefs. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But we also found a shift in the, the types of sharks that were there. Previously, there would have been relatively more faster swimming sharks. So you could think of kind of your classic reef shark, like a hammerhead or requiem shark in, in the past. And how, just a, a, a question that just kind of popped into my head there when you talked about this like fossil reef under a mangrove. How did you know it was there in the first place? Yeah, so um, I guess my advisor at the time was just kind of serendipitously, I think driving, the story goes, he was driving his boat by and saw that they were doing construction and like building a hotel, like in kind of on in the mangroves and were digging into it to create a moat back to like this not great land development. However, the um, benefit for us of them kind of destroying and digging into the mangrove is that mm. they had unearthed this 
fossil reef that was beneath it. Um, and so he was able to establish a relationship with the developers, which meant that the lab and then eventually me uh, could go and collect samples from this really incredible site. So kind of a, a silver lining of the destruction of this particular coastal region did end up with us getting some some very cool samples. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah, like you said, a, a silver lining <laughs> to that sort of development. Yeah. Not nice, but something good did come out of it in the end. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned there kind of what those prehistoric assemblages would have looked like, but how does that compare then to those more modern reefs that were that were nearby? Yeah, so today there's been about a 71% decline in overall shark abundance, which, I mean, mm. ultimately isn't that surprising. I actually thought maybe the number would have been even higher, but there you go. And then nurse sharks, so sort of a, a more uh, demersal bottom-dwelling species that is nowadays quite common in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. um, relatively more common on the modern reefs than in, in the, the fossil reefs. But interestingly, they also did decline in their absolute abundance. So they're relatively more common today, but their populations did suffer a decline over the two time periods that we were interested in looking at. So both a shift in number of sharks and types of sharks, which really builds, I mean, builds more support for this idea of changing shark communities. I mean, the the results Mm. themselves are consistent with, you know, patterns that we're seeing in other places, except we're extending that timeline back a lot further and are able to give very location-specific information for a region that really didn't have much um, mm. in the way of, of long-term data. And I guess, I mean, we've talked a lot about like anthropogenic impacts, but do we know specifically kind of what activities cause that decline in abundance and uh, species composition? So that was sort of our, our next question was, okay, mm. we have these two time periods, <clears throat> we see a big change, what caused the change? And so we we were able to piece together both from the kind of nature of the patterns that we observed. So what I said in terms of, you know, both, we see a decline in both more pelagic sharks, but also in demersal sharks. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also um, various historical records from the region. We looked at like explorers records. We looked at some ecological surveys. We looked at stories and anecdotes and some photos. We looked at some archeological evidence to try to piece together a timeline of Mm how might kind of perceptions or human interactions with sharks in this particular region changed over time. And I guess in short, it was likely a combination of both fishing and habitat degradation and potentially prey loss, which are the kind of two top uh, causes of many shark declines. So fishing, we saw a loss of really commercially valuable sharks Mm -hmm. that we see the remains in archeological middens, We see them in fish markets today. We know they're being fished and we see a decline in their populations. But this particular region also has had a lot of land development. Speaking of the mangroves, um, (laughs) there've been banana plantations in the region. There's been declines of water quality, use of fertilizers. And so Mm. there's been a really big shift in the types of corals and sort of quality of habitat and probably prey for sharks as well. Um, And so that might've caused this decline in the absolute abundance of something like a nurse shark, which is not very commercially valuable. They have really thick skin, so their denticles are super thick. They're more nocturnal, so they're less valuable um, by fishermen, and you don't really see them in markets or in the archaeological record. Right. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me a little bit as well when you're talking about water quality is I used to do, um, I would, I was doing a research project. My partner used to work out in Madagascar and I went out to help him out. And one of the things that we were looking at is the link between mangrove forests and coral reefs. So if you take out a mangrove forest or if you severely reduce that, what is the impact on the coral reef? And nine times out of 10, the coral reef suffered because of that. So obviously we've Mm -hmm. lost a lot of our mangrove forests. So just thinking about kind of like the link there, but so many different ways that we've had an impact on these kind of environments that we don't even know about, right? We talk about overfishing a lot with sharks, but, you know, habitat loss, habitat degradation, all of that kind of stuff all has some sort of impact. And we often don't find that out until until later it's too late yeah and then the context of like where you are matters so i mean this was done Mm -hmm. in one particular site but some of our more recent work work, which i can't fully divulge quite yet but it's showing that in (laughs) different places we might see slightly different results and so environmental context is really important when doing some of this work 
Okay, awesome. I'm very much looking forward to to seeing those results come out. I'm just be fascinated to see what you find. Yeah, foreshadowing for next time for another episode (laughs) in the future. (laughs) Thinking about when you're talking about like piecing together all of those, you know, different parts of evidence. So like explorers records and, you know, old um, fishing data and all of that kind of information sort of reminded me a little bit of a detective trying to trying to solve a crime. <laughs> but is that I how you felt? refer to myself as a, uh, what did I, time traveling shark sleuth. <laughs> what a title. The coolest job title ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is the coolest job title ever. Um, uh, going back to the Greenland Shark episode, we had uh, Julius Nielsen on. He called himself a Greenland Shark detective. So oh, I maybe that. I feel like we should make some sort of TV show with different characters in it. And you could be the time traveling shark sleuth. I think that is an mm-hmm. excellent, mm-hmm. excellent nickname. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, but for sharks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's absolutely it. kind of coming to the end of our of our time and our episode and it's been so incredibly fascinating to learn about how you do things what you're finding what you're looking at um I just kind of wanted to bring it to a close with we've sort of been talking about it all the way through but we're obviously looking at the past to inform now inform the future and I wondered what can we learn from looking at you know these kind of prehistoric shark assemblages that can help us conserve sharks in the present day. That is really what motivates me and I would say like a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is the hope that you know this information does go on to actually inform conservation. Um, Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's kind of come up multiple times is that you know sharks and their relatives have been around for over 400 million years. They've survived mass extinction events, Um, And yet, just in the last several decades, we've brought many of their populations to the brink of collapse. And so there's definitely sort of a longer um, story here in terms of how sharks are are changing through time. Um, And I would say over the, you know, kind of thousand year timescales that I'm really interested in, it offers us really, you know, new and exciting insight into what the oceans were like and what sharks were like um, before humans at different points in time in human histories. And so the long-term impacts that humans have had um, on shark communities, you know, over those timescales um, to try to understand ranges of natural variability and whether our ecosystems today are similar to what they were in the past. Are those functions still there or have we totally changed? Mm. Um, and this information is so important for understanding, again, like, what could we potentially achieve with conservation? How does it differ in different places mm-hmm. and what... Um, I guess, what could success look like in, a, mm. in, in different places and sort of guiding and informing management goals. So I think there's a, a lot to be learned from the fossil record and from kind of reconstructing baselines at different points in time. A hundred percent. And I'm so, I'm so excited to see how your work progresses and what comes out of that. And that brings me on to my next question, which is what you're focused on now. So your Save Our Seas Foundation project, the Shark Skin Time Machine, that was quite a, that was a wee while ago. Hey, that was... It was a wee while ago. Yeah. It's like 20, <laughs> 2014. I think, if I remember Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. <laughs> but what, what are you kind of focused on now and kind of where do you want to go next? So, yeah, so the, actually the Save Our Seas grant that I had gotten helped support some of the like first work that was being done mm-hmm. on this project. So some of the first methods development um, and my time in Panama initially was funded by Save Our Seas. So I'm super grateful for that, for that initial money. Um, so now I've kind of come full circle and I'm back at the Smithsonian. Um, where I'm currently um, a postdoc here. And I'll be living in Panama for the next uh, couple years, um, developing this approach a little bit more, but I'm also, um, so I guess, kind of applying it to a new system. We're looking at changes across the ISS of Panama, which have really different mm-hmm. um, environments, um, build, using doing some like time series analysis with cores, so trying to build out mm-hmm. sort of the, the analytical capacity of this work um, and dive a little bit deeper into like processes and functions. So, okay, we know shark populations are changing. What does this actually mean for ecosystems? And can we make projections going forward? So hoping to continue a little bit of the dental work, but also expand into to new questions. Into new territories. 
uh, and new territories unexplored and what a place to be as well i can imagine there's some really cool environments for you to be able to explore even just in your free time sort of snorkeling and scuba diving it must be a pretty awesome place to be Exactly. I'm very privileged to get to be down here. I mean, the Isthmus is such an incredible place to do science because mm-hmm. we have access to the environments. Panama is an amazing place to live. And so it's a great real like natural laboratory um, to be living and doing science. So yeah, it's a, it's a great place to be for the next couple of years. Awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. And if anyone wants to follow along with your work, and I highly advise that you do, I mean, why would you not want to? Why would you not want to follow the uh, time traveling shark sleuth? I think you'd be mad not to. Um, We'll put links to all of uh, Erin's social media handles in the show notes so that you can find her. She's also got an amazing website as well. And our last question is something, it's a silly one. It is my favorite question. Uh, And it is, if you could be any species of shark, ray or skate in the world, what would you be and why? This is such a tricky question because some of my favorite sharks are not necessarily ones that I would identify with. There's a lot of really cool sharks, but I was asking myself, like, is that shark really me? Not necessarily. I ended up coming up with a scalloped hammerhead, maybe. Oh, nice. Thinking, so I've moved around a lot in my life. I've done some work in the near shore. I've also done, I had a foray into like more oceanographic science at one point in my, earlier on in my career. Uh-huh. Um, I'm kind of solitary at times, but I do like to hang out with friends. So I was thinking all of this like movement. They're also in Panama, they're highly fished. And so we're thinking of maybe doing some work studying them. Some of these attributes of, of scalloped hammerhead sort of resonated me, with me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that as my final answer. <laughs> That's a great answer. And they're just cool, full stop, I think. <laughs> they're also, oh, yeah. And they have beautiful denticles. Really, really do cool they? denticles. <laughs> what do they look like? Yeah. So they're the, the ridge type, they're the drag reduction um, mm-hmm. type. So, and they have really like distinct peaks. So they almost look like a leaf. And they have these neat, like, honeycombing microstructures that almost kind of looks like honeycomb. And so there's just, like, a lot going on there. It could be, like, an ornament that you hang on there, like, Christmas tree. Uh, Yeah, they're really beautiful. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Special, special shark. And I would very much like to see, if you have any pictures of the denticles, I would very much like to see that. (laughs) I do. Yeah, I have some scanning electron microscope pictures that look particularly neat. Oh, amazing. And... I did say that I would have a think about what a campaign was called and I have an idea. Okay. I'll pitch it to you before we go. Uh, what do you think about dandruff over dentistry? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Does that work? Okay, great. We'll go with that. <laughs> I mean, like stickers, get a little logo. We can make yeah. some totes, open an et- open an Etsy store. <laughs> any artist listening and I know there are artists that listen and I know a lot of you are extremely talented please get on this uh and yeah (laughs) we'll get people excited about if you if they're not already excited about shark tentacles after listening to this episode we will make it our mission to get people to get more excited about shark skin I'm on board (laughs) Amazing. But Erin, this has been so much fun. I have loved learning from you and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And yes, thank you so much for coming on and being so generous with all of your insights and all of your knowledge. It's just been so, so fascinating to get to know you a little bit better. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really wonderful to chat um, and so many good, so many good questions, so many fun topics to explore. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our amazing visuals are by Jamie Silver. Our beautiful logo is by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous thank you to the time-traveling shark sleuth herself, Dr. Erin Dillon, for coming on the podcast. It was amazing to be able to learn more about your fascinating research. If you would like to follow along with Erin's work, and please do, you can find her on Twitter. She is at Erin M. Dillon, all one word. Or you can head to her personal website, which is erinmdillon.wordpress.com. We will leave links, as we always do, in the show notes, so please do go and check them out. Out. 
And lastly, thank you at home for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can let us know by leaving us a rating or a review on your podcast apps. We really do appreciate it and it helps more people to find us and more people to find out about how amazing sharks are. Who doesn't want that? You can also get in touch by emailing Isla at saverseas.com. We absolutely love hearing from you. And if there are any questions or topics you'd like us to address on the podcast, please do let us know. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.